non-Christians will not want to become Christians unless there are credible Christians for them to observe. If the gospel is to be heard, it must first be seen. Friends, our family members and our acquaintances, our coworkers, our teammates, our classmates, they're all looking to see if Jesus will make a visible difference in your life and mine. If Jesus is not essential to us, then why in the world would they make Jesus essential to them? Over the last couple of months, we have been talking about who's your one. We've been identifying that one person that we are close to who's not close to the Lord. We have prayed every day, at least once a day, for 30 days for that individual. Last Sunday, we were given a an evangelistic tool called Three Circles, just a mechanism to help us as we engage people in conversations about the gospel. And we are looking for ways to share the good news of Jesus with that one person that God has burdened upon our heart. Along the way, we have examined one-on-one encounters that Jesus had with various people in his ministry. And today is no different. This morning, I invite you to take your Bible, draw your sword, turn to the gospel according to John, I want to read John chapter 9 in its entirety. It's a great story. And today I want to read verses 1 to 41. So if you're able and willing, once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 9, I'll begin at verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, no, no. No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So even they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? 
How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? They threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. And those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This salvation story gives us four clues of conversion. First, salvation is always initiated by the Lord. The opening line of our passage says that as he went along, he being Jesus, saw a man born blind. At this time of his ministry, Jesus was steeped in controversy. In John chapter 8, Jesus and the boys had gone to the capital city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was there that Jesus downloaded one of those messianic metaphors. He said, I am the light of the world. This did not set well with the Jewish leaders. They engaged Jesus in conversation, reduced to second grade name calling. They said, no, you are a Samaritan. You are demon possessed. We are children of Abraham. Jesus engaged them in conversation. 
He said, you say that your father is Abraham, but you don't even know God. No, Abraham saw me and he rejoiced. Oh, they were outraged. They said, how is it that you, you're not even 50 years of age. How is it that you can say that you've seen Abraham? Friends, the disclaimer was not so much that Jesus had seen Abraham, but that Abraham had seen Jesus. Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood what he was saying, so he very calmly, yet dramatically said, before Abraham existed, I am. Oh, by Jesus making that phrase, it was abundantly clear he was claiming deity. He was claiming to be God himself. The Jewish leaders picked up uh, stones to, uh, to stone him, but the reality is you can't destroy the rock of ages. So Jesus just slipped out of the temple. He was making his way down the temple complex. And as he was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind. This man had never seen anything. He had never seen the beauty of a sunset, never seen the radiance of a rainbow. This man had never seen his mother's face. He had never seen his own reflection in a pool of water. This man had never seen a rose in full bloom. This man had never seen the majesty of snow-capped mountains. This man had never seen anything. He was born blind. Jesus saw a man. The disciples saw a problem. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, I understand the question. It's a question that is uh, steeped and originated in the reality of, of where does suffering come from? After all, all of us know that suffering is part and parcel with the human existence. We know what it is to suffer and face calamity and injury. We know what it is to have sickness and sadness. We know what it is to be crippled by a crisis and a circumstance. We understand what suffering looks like. So the question is a legitimate question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? I will have to say that these disciples were not thinking like kingdom people. They were thinking like karma people. You know karma, don't you? Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Clearly, this is a bad thing that happened to this man, so either this man or his parents have to be bad. Either he's a bad man or mom and dad are bad people, but somebody has to be responsible for this man's condition. Maybe this man did something in his prenatal condition that caused him to be born blind. Maybe this man is an example of transgenerational sin that something that mom and dad did now find full effect in the life of this son causing him to be born blind. So Jesus, who is responsible for this suffering? Now before we chide the disciples too harshly, I mean we kind of do this too, don't we? We see the man at the end of the exit ramp and some of us think to ourselves, what did that man do wrong? To lose his house and lose his job. I mean, clearly, he must have done something wrong. Now, once again, let's be very clear that the Bible does teach us that sin carries consequences. And from biblical logic, we can deduce that there are many times that when we experience suffering and setback, we can trace it back to a poor life decision that we made. 
Because we know that that our choices carry consequences. And by God's grace, he forgives us of our sin, but he never removes the consequences. So we can understand that sometimes um, our calamities, sometimes our suffering, sometimes the suffering of other individuals, you can trace it back to bad decisions that were made in their past. And because of bad decisions today, they carry the effect of those consequences. And certainly we do that all the time. We, we evaluate our life, we evaluate the lives of others, and sometimes that can happen. But then there are other times when John chapter 9 takes place. Suffering happens and it's nobody's fault. This man didn't do anything wrong. His parents didn't sin. Jesus said, this happened so that the work of God might be revealed in his life today. You know, sometimes suffering happens just because we live in a broken world. It's not because of your sin. It's not because of the particular sin of your parents. But sometimes infirmity, sadness, setback, calamity. Sometimes things happen just because we live in a totally depraved world and we live in a world that is fallen and broken. Does your theology have enough strength to be able to describe a sovereign God and at the same time the reality of human suffering? I mean, the Bible is clear that our God is sovereign. What does that mean? In the words of D.A. Carson, it means that nothing is outside the sweep of his control, that God is sovereign. Nothing is outside his jurisdiction. Nothing is outside his sweep of control. And yet sometimes we see the reality of suffering and agony and tragedy. And according to John chapter 9, that God in ages past permitted this man to be born blind so that today, God might do a mighty work in his life. Is your theology that big to handle this scenario? Where you can say that my God is so big, he is so sovereign, he is so much in control, that he permitted this suffering, this tragedy, this heartache, he permitted it so that today he may break in and redeem. You know, sometimes when we suffer, we ask the question, why me, why this, why now? And sometimes the reason God permits it is because he has a purpose to promote. Because today, God wants to break in and do something miraculous in your life. Do you have a faith that's strong enough for that? Do you have a faith that is robust enough for that? Where you can say, God, you are sovereign. And I know you're in control of everything that keeps me up at night. I know you're in control with everything that causes me to come unglued and unraveled. I know you're in control. And today just might be the day when you're going to break in and do something miraculous. Is your faith strong enough for that? Let's go one step further. Is your faith strong enough? For the reality of a sovereign God who could step in today. But your today may not happen until next week, next month, next year. The presence of suffering does not diminish the sovereignty of God. The presence of suffering demands a God who is sovereign. 
We've got to have a God who is sovereign. And the biblical God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. Just because they're suffering, that doesn't diminish his sovereignty. No, because they're suffering, it demands there must be a sovereign God. Because suffering cannot be the final answer. It cannot be the final piece in the puzzle. God must be the one who has the final say. So Jesus just set up his disciples for a mighty miracle. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this was permitted to happen so that today the mighty work of God might be displayed in this man's life. I mean, if you're like the disciples right now, you are poised for a mighty miracle. I mean, you are sitting on the edge of your seat. You are ready for God to do something that is remarkable through his servant, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus do next? He spits on the ground. He makes some mud. He places it on the man's eyes and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. Honestly, am I the only one in the house who is surprised by the actions of Jesus? This sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, what do you expect Jesus to do? I mean, he set up this great reason for a tremendous miracle. What do you expect him to do? I expect him just to say the word and this man can see. I expect him perhaps to place his hands upon this man's head. Maybe touch this man's eyes and blind eyes will see in a moment that, that uh, instantaneously, this one who had never seen anything will now behold the face of his creator. I mean, isn't that what you expect? There's not a one of us who expected in this moment for Jesus to hock a loogie, spit in the ground, make a mud pie and slap it on this man's face and tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. There's not one of us who saw this coming. And I promise you the blind man didn't see it coming either. I mean, he, he's there on the side of the road, right? He's just a permanent fixture along the path. And, and maybe he realizes it's Jesus and he's just there. Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, did you just spit? What are you doing? Now? Jesus, for the love of God, why'd you do that? Right? I mean, this man, he, he wasn't asking for this. He wasn't anticipating this. He didn't do anything to cause this. He didn't plead for a healing. He didn't request for Jesus to do something. All this is just initiated by the Lord. And Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, slaps it on the man's face, and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, once again, the blind man must have thought to himself, wow, thanks for making it easy on me, Jesus. I don't know where the pool of Siloam is. I've never seen it. I'm a blind man for crying out loud. I've been blind since birth. Can you at least help a brother out and point me in the right direction? Jesus, I don't know where to go. Not only can I not see, but now you've caked on mud all over my eyes and my face. Everything in this story is initiated by the Lord. This man did not ask for any of this healing. He didn't request any of this divine intervention. Because, friend, um, spiritual sight, salvation, is always initiated by the Lord. Jesus just told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. John says that's the word that means sent. 
So the man went, and he washed, and he came home seeing. It's pretty simple, very profound. He went, he washed, he came home seeing. Those three steps are repeated in this man's story over and over again. Anybody who will listen, he gives his testimony. I went, I washed, I came home seeing. I went, I washed, I came home seeing. I went and I washed and I came home seeing. Salvation, number one, is not only initiated by God, but salvation, number two, produces a pattern of personal obedience. This man had to do something. What did he have to do? He had to do the same thing you have to do. He did the same thing I have to do. He had to take Jesus at his word, believe him, and follow in obedience. At what point did this man have his eyesight? It wasn't until after he had obeyed Jesus, went to the pool, washed his face, and then at that moment, not a second too soon, at that moment, not a moment earlier, in that moment, he could then see. Salvation is initiated by the Lord. But salvation, secondly, always produces a pattern of personal obedience. If you and I are saved by God, then it, we, it, is, it is a divine intervention where the Lord has saved us. He's opened up our eyes unto his salvation, but he produces in us a pattern of personal obedience. This man can now see. He goes home. His neighbors gather around, and they cannot process this. They say, um, I think this is the man who used to sit and beg. Others say, no, he just looks like the man. And our buddy is standing there waving his arms saying, no, I am the man. <laughs> well, how did this happen? The man named Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go and wash. I did, and now I can see. Salvation, first and foremost, is initiated by God. Secondly, it... It produces a pattern of personal obedience. Third, salvation calls for a continual confession of Jesus. Did you hear what he said in verse 11? It's the man named Jesus. This man who used to be blind and now can see, he will never shrink back from the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. And in the story... His spiritual sight becomes clearer the longer he walks with Jesus. And such is the case for everyone who believes. Today, I see Jesus more clearly than I did when I first accepted Christ. And if by God's grace I live to be 97 years old, my hope, my prayer, my belief is that I will see Jesus more clearly at 97 than I do today. Because the longer we walk with Jesus the more clarity and focus he gives to our spiritual sight. So in this story, uh, Jesus becomes clearer. His identity becomes more solidified in this man's life. At first, he simply says the man called Jesus. Spit on the ground, made some mud, put it on my eyes. I went to the pool, and now I can see. The neighbors, they didn't know what to do. And so they were having a problem processing everything, so they took the man to the Pharisees. Now, that makes sense, actually, because the Pharisees were the local experts, those with authority. 
In that day and time, if you didn't know how to make heads or tails out of anything, you would go to the Pharisees and the Pharisees could try to give you their opinion about why this is happening and what's going on. Even today, people do the very same thing. Now, albeit, people today don't always go to the local preacher. But when something happens that we don't quite understand, we always seek out the expert. We seek out the person of authority, and we listen to that person. And that person is interviewed for a soundbite on the 6 o'clock evening news. Regardless of what the crisis may be, the pandemic may be, the problem may be, we go to the experts, and the experts tell us how we're supposed to respond and how we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to act and react. And so we go to the experts, and the experts give us the soundbite for the 6 o'clock evening news. That's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were there, and they didn't quite understand, or they, they had to make heads or tails of what was going on. And so they began to interrogate this man. Even the Pharisees were divided. When they realized that this man named Jesus had done this mighty act on the Sabbath, there were some Pharisees who said, clearly this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But still other Pharisees said, whoa, time out, not so fast. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. And if this man really was born blind and now he can see, we know that God doesn't honor the work of a sinner. So even the Pharisees could not be united on what exactly took place. To those who said that the work of Jesus was that of a sinner because he worked on the Sabbath. Let's be reminded that in those days... Uh, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, they gave very burdensome, cumbersome rules and regulations upon people because they believed that people didn't know for themselves what it meant to keep the Sabbath. Now, Jesus never broke God's command. Jesus never broke God's law. But he routinely turned all of man's laws upside down on their head. So, in all these additional burdensome rules and regulations the pharisees would say um, healing cannot be done on the sabbath because that obviously is work and there are six days that you can be healed so come on tuesday not saturday in order to be healed another one of those burdensome rules and regulations was that um, whoever was preparing the meal for the sabbath that person was told, uh, you could not knead the dough on the Sabbath. By, by kneading the dough, uh, that was exertion and effort and work, so make all the food preparations the day before, not on the Sabbath. And still another of those rules and regulations was that um, you, could, you, you could only walk so many steps um, if you walked too many steps, then that was considered work. So if you were a Jewish person with a Fitbit, you would be fit to be tied on the Sabbath because they limited the number of steps you could take. Now we begin to understand the details of the miracle that Jesus performs on this day. Because Jesus, he wants them to know that yes, uh, he is the one doing the healing, that he's doing something that nobody's ever done before. And yes, this took place on the Sabbath because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. 
And the whole notion of spitting on the ground and making a mud pie, the Pharisees would have likened that unto the kneading of dough, working to mix it together. It would be exertion. It would be effort. And Jesus, that's why he spit on the ground and made the mud, slapped on the man's eyes. And then why did he go to the pool of Siloam? Because that was just a few steps beyond the limitation of how many steps that could be taken on that day. So Jesus does all of this to turn all of the cumbersome man-made rules and regulations, flip them over on their head in order to say, I am the Lord of every day of the week, including the Sabbath. Furthermore, even by the testimony and the conversation of the Pharisees, we are reminded that what Jesus did in John chapter 9 is phenomenal. Let me ask you this. How many Old Testament stories are there of a man born blind who's given his sight? The answer, none. There's not one story in the Old Testament of a man born blind given sight. In the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of miracles. You'll find sticks that become snakes. You'll find a leprous hand that is made smooth. You'll even find dead people that come back to life again. But you will not find a person born blind given sight. In fact, that's why Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 61, when he begins to predict and foretell the coming of the Messiah, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he lists out several things the Messiah will do, among which the recovery of sight to the blind. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes to the synagogue to preach, he's given the scroll of Isaiah, he opens it to this very passage, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Let me tell you what my ministry is going to be about, among which recovery of sight to the blind. When he gets done reading it, he rolls it back up, hands it to the attendant, and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus never had an identity crisis. He never had to find himself, never had to sow his wild oats. He knew exactly who he was. He is the Messiah, and he proved it by his actions. So the Pharisees, they're a little bit divided. They don't know. They say, well, wait a minute. This guy did this on the Sabbath. He's got to be a sinner. Somebody else said, no, he can't be a sinner because he's doing a messianic activity. He's doing something we ain't never seen before. We've never seen a man born blind receive his sight. So they're confused. So then they turn to the man who used to be blind and now can see. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He says in verse 17, he's a prophet. Now, this is a remarkable testimony. It's in this moment that he declares this man is a prophet. He's on par with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He's doing things that those guys foretold that the mighty prophet would do when he came. So this man is a prophet. The Pharisees say, you don't know what you're talking about. We've got to explain this in some way. So then they concluded, you know what? This is a hoax. This is a hoax. This man was not really born blind. We've got to verify this. And who best to ask? Mom and dad. So then they called in the parents. Is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Tell us the truth. Yes. He was? This man? Yes. Born blind? Yes. Well, how can he now see? Who healed him? And the parents throw Junior under the bus. They said, well... Who healed him and how he can now see, we don't know. But he's of age. 
you can ask him. He can testify for himself. To say that he's of age means he's at least a teenager, if not an adult. What they're saying is his testimony is admissible in court. So ask him. Junior, you. You're the last one on the, on the branch. You go out there, buddy, because we're not. They throw him under the bus. John says the reason they did that was simply because the Jewish leaders had already said, if you claim that Jesus is Christ, you'll be kicked out of the synagogue. To be kicked out, to be excommunicated, was to be blackballed in society. This not only meant you can't come here to worship, but it also meant nobody would do business with you. You would lose your livelihood. You would lose all your capacity to make ends meet. You would be destitute just like this lifelong beggar. Because this man who had been born blind, he, he couldn't hold down a job. He wasn't permitted to go into the worship, uh, to temp, uh, go to the temple to worship. He, he was not permitted to do any of those things. He was marginalized by society. And if you were kicked out of the temple, that very same thing would happen to you. So the parents, they say, ask him. He's of age. They call the man back in for a second interview slash interrogation. Give glory to God, they said. That does not mean praise the Lord. When they say give glory to God, it's like when you got in trouble and your parents told you to fess up. All right, you got to come clean. What happened? And now the man who used to be blind and now can see, now he has some sanctified smack talk. He's a little saucy, and I like it. He says, y'all been asking me the same question over and over again. I'm going to give you the same answer. I went, I washed, and now I can see. Um, why do you keep asking me the same question? Is it that you too want to be his disciples? Ouch! Do you hear and feel the barbed wire of the statement? He says to the Pharisees, he says to the Jewish leaders, what, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus too? They come unglued. We are disciples of Moses, for we know that God spoke through Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. When our friend says, what, do you want to be a disciple too? By implication, he's acknowledging that he is a disciple of Jesus you ask the question, when did this man become a disciple of Jesus? The answer, when did you become a disciple of Jesus? At the moment that you took Jesus at his word and you started obeying him. That's what it means to be a disciple. At the moment this man, by faith, trusted the word of Jesus to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, he did what Jesus told him to do. That pattern of obedience was perfected in his life. And this man was obedient to Christ, and he was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus, and he continually confessed, Jesus is my Messiah. So you get down to verse 31, and he says, this is really remarkable. This is remarkable. You call this man a sinner. I call him a prophet. You don't know where he comes from. I say he comes from God because we can agree that nobody has ever done this before in our sight. We've never seen this where a man born blind can now see. This man must be from God. And then the Pharisees look at him and they say, you have been steeped in sin since birth. How dare you lecture us? 
We're the Pharisees. You're a fixture. We are the people of authority. You're the person who's on the side of the road that nobody gives the time of day to. Who do you think you are to lecture us? They kicked him out. For the second time in our story, this man is found by Jesus. Friend, let me tell you, um, regardless what happens in your life, Jesus can find you. Jesus knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows how you are. He knows what's going on in your life. The the circumstances of life, the the suffering, the chaos, the turmoil, um, all the calamity that comes at you that, that you don't understand. I mean, Jesus knows. He knows who you are and he knows where you are and he can find you. When you suffer from the malignant tumor that you didn't see coming, Jesus can find you and heal you. When you have to pick up the broken pieces from your loved one that got hit by the drunk driver and now everything is shattered, Jesus knows how to put your life back together. He knows where to find you. The moment when you are betrayed by that loved one and you didn't ask for it, you didn't deserve it, Jesus is the bomb of Gilead. He's the one who can come and help you in the moment of need. Jesus knows when the world shoves you away, pushes you aside, marginalizes you, looks over you, kicks you out, and kicks you while you're down. Jesus knows where you are. Jesus found the man. And what Jesus did for that man, he can do for you. He found him. And for the first time, this man who could not see now is able to behold his Redeemer. He's able to see Jesus for the very first time. Jesus asked the man a question, do you believe in the Son of Man? The title Son of Man is so rich. It's the favorite self-identifying title of Jesus in the gospel. The phrase Son of Man literally describes God coming down as a man saying, thus saith the Lord. That's Son of Man. God in the flesh speaking on behalf of God Almighty. This is why Jesus calls himself more times than anything else, son of man. He asked this man who used to be blind, now he can see, do you believe in the son of man? Tell me who he is, sir, and I will believe. And Jesus locking eyes with this man, and this man seeing Jesus for the very first time in his life, he says, the one who's speaking to you is he. And in verse 38, the man who used to be blind simply says, Lord, I believe. Salvation is a continual confession of Jesus. Verse 11, verse 17, verse 25, verse 31, verse 38. First, it's the man named Jesus. Then it is a prophet. Then, listen, um, you may call him a sinner, but one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Now, you don't know where he's from. I know he is from God. And ultimately, who is this Jesus? Lord. This is a foreshadowing of what Mary will say in the garden tomb when she will say, my Lord and my God. In John's gospel, this declaration that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is Messiah. He is Christ. He's anointed one. He's redeemer. He's creator. He's sustainer. He is the one we've been hoping for. He is my Lord. And I believe Because salvation not only is initiated by God, it also produces a pattern of personal obedience. It's a call for a continual confession of Jesus. But fourth and finally, 
Salvation declares and demands devoted worship. Salvation declares and demands devoted worship. In verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The ancient word worship means to fall down on your face. Normally, it was in front of royalty. Then whenever a person would go into royalty, the only appropriate response was a genuflex. A person had to kneel, had to bow, had to get as low to the ground as possible. That's what this man does. He's standing not just in front of a king, but the king of all kings. My Lord. He bows down and he worships him. Your life as a believer, salvation upon you demands devoted worship. It's not an option. And when I say devoted worship, I don't just mean a service you come to once a week. It's not just a service. It's a, it's a, it's a way of life. It's how we live. We live as devoted followers of Jesus. He makes a difference in our life. He is essential to us. That everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, it's all shaped through the reality of who Jesus is and the activity of Jesus that he did on the cross. For though he was uh, crucified for our sins, he was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. And we see all of life through the prism of Calvary. Everything is seen through devoted worship of Jesus. Jesus said to this man, to his disciples, to anyone who would listen, the Son of Man came for judgment. The proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it always has a twofold effect. Either it will make blind people able to see, or those who think they already can see and they have no need for God, they'll become even more blinded. The proclamation of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, it always does that. It always either gives sight to the blind or causes those who think they can see and they really see no need for God to become even more blinded. This is a story about salvation. This is a story about, yes, physical sight, but it's also a story about spiritual sight. It's how God does this in your life and mine. Your salvation, my salvation, initiated by God. That salvation produces a pattern of personal obedience. It, it, it's a call that, of a continual confession of Jesus. It is a demand that we are devoted worshipers. This is what the salvation of God does in my life and in your life. There are very few people who really know how blind I am. When I was in fourth grade, uh, I was prescribed glasses. Um, you can imagine how nice and cool and thick those glasses were. Because, uh, friends, I, I've been blind as a bat uh, really all my life. But it got really bad about fourth grade. Um, and so mom and dad took me to the doctor. And the doctor affirmed and confirmed, this kid can't see. And so they gave me glasses. It was that same great fourth grade year that I got glasses and braces all within a matter of weeks. I mean, I had the tin grin and I had bottle cap, bottle cap glasses. I mean, I was like, you know, I mean, that's, that's who I was. That's, that's me as a fourth grader. Um, and I remember when the doctor, um, we were at the store uh, when the glasses came in and we went there and he put the glasses on my eyes. 
And he adjusted a few things. And then he told me just to go outside. And I can tell you, uh, I never knew the sky to be that blue. I never knew the grass to be that green. I never knew myself to be that ugly. (laughs) I did not know how blind I was until I could see. Now that's about my physical sight, but it's also about my spiritual sight. I did not know how blind I was until I could see. I've been walking with Jesus since I was seven years old. I see him more clearly than I ever have. I see myself more clearly than I ever have. The contrast between me and Jesus is stark. And because of my sin, because of my total depravity, I see the desperate need that I have for Jesus in my life. Not just when I was seven years old, but today and every day of my life. And this is my Jesus who has saved me. And I did not realize how blind I was until I could see. And what's true for me, I suspect, is true for all the redeemed. It's probably your testimony. That's my testimony. It's probably your story, too. And non-Christians will not want to become Christians unless there are credible Christians for them to observe. The gospel must first be seen before it can be heard. Your one, my one, they need to know that Jesus is essential in our life. How do you do that? Because you live out this salvation. Initiated by the Lord, a pattern of personal obedience, a continual call for confession of Jesus, and a life of devoted worship. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me and y'all. Because we once were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, and now we see. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. To those of us that you have given spiritual sight, today is a day for us to say thank you, Jesus. For our friends, our family members, those who do not yet know you as Lord, it's a day for us to say help us to speak clearly, confessionally about who you are and what you've done. So, Lord, help us to declare by our lips and our lifestyles that you are a good God. Lord, today, if someone's in need of salvation, let them come. If someone's in need of prayer, let them come. If, if you're laying upon our heart that one person, let us come. Let us pray before you. Let us ask for you to use us. And today, intervene in a miraculous way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.